And I remind people that their story is their treasure. There's not a single story on the planet like your story, like our story. Each of us has a story that's never been exactly duplicated. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an amazing guest to share with you today. His name is Dan Millman, and he teaches the peaceful warrior way in the United States and all over the world. Dan is the author of 18 books published in 29 languages. He's a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and college professor. His best-selling Way of the Peaceful Warrior was adapted into a feature film starring Nick Nolte. And we're going to talk about that, of course, but we're also going to talk about his new book, which is available everywhere tomorrow. Dan, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you here with us today. Thank you, Dr. Richard, and I am very happy to be here with you. We're going to have a blast. I can't wait to talk about your new book, but obviously this is kind of a different animal than most of the people who come on my show because your your life has been made into a movie, or at least a portion of your life has. So I like to peel back the onion a little bit, find out your superhero origin story, because I, people's whys are so important. Talk to us about your journey and what ultimately led you on the path that you're on today. Well, that's what I'm also hoping to convey in the new book, my memoir, uh, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. But basically, I started out as a kid discovering an old trampoline and loving to jump up and down and try different flips and so on once I learned the basics. And I never dreamt that would lead to what I do today, but I just kept jumping and kept improving, and which led to eventually a, a world championship on the trampoline, but also gymnastics and college scholarships. So that those modest beginnings began first a, a focus on what creates talent for sports, because I was an athlete and later a coach at Stanford University. And I wondered whether talent, and as a psychologist, I think you'd find this moderately interesting. It seemed to me with old nature nurture idea that that talent after years in sport and observing other people, my own informal research led me to believe that talent was about 20% innate in terms of body type, lends itself to certain sports, and about 80% could be developed. Now, I define talent operationally as the ability to learn things faster easier and rise to higher levels, higher potential. So that's, I think, a fair definition of talent. And I asked myself, if it could be developed, what qualities do you need to develop to become a more talented athlete in any sport or music or any physical endeavor at all? 
And it seemed to me that strength or muscular control was important in movement and sports and so on. And also suppleness, flexibility, range of motion, and stamina, of course, that's all given. But also the most important element is sensitivity, which includes qualities like rhythm, timing, balance, reflex speed, and, and uh, of course, as I said, coordination. And so I didn't, we knew how to develop more strength and more suppleness, but I also devised some exercises when I was the coach at Stanford that helped create and improve coordination, rhythm, timing, balance, and so on. And my theories actually did work out in practice. Our team at Stanford, when I began there, was high school level. And by the time, well, three and a half years later, we were one of the top three teams in the United States. And I coached the top U.S. Olympian as well. And I might still be coaching today. It's an honorable profession. You have to deal with mind, emotions, body, and spirit to be a good coach. And But I started realizing that being able to do the skills of gymnastics, handstands, somersaults, and so on, didn't help me much when I went out on a date. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't help me when I got married or dealt with financial challenges, career decisions, or the stuff of everyday life. So that's when I started asking Dr. Richard uh, bigger questions. How can we create talent, not just for sport, but talent for living? What life skills do we need to learn to live wisely and well? And that search led me on, well, about a 20-year quest, which I described in, in the new book. And it led me to discover and find four different mentors, master teachers, radically different in each various aspects of what we call the spiritual search or the search for meaning, purpose, connection, happiness, even transcendence. And so all that research made, it, it's also a story about my evolution from this young, naive seeker, athlete to an elder teacher today. And one of the shifts I went through, which makes it so appropriate to the theme of um, helping and your show is that along the way I discovered and I realized that no matter how much I improved myself, and I was definitely on a self-improvement quest, only one person benefited. But if there were a way for me to reach out and touch other people's lives, to make a positive difference in their lives, that made my life more meaningful and achieved that sense of connection. And so that's why I seem to be called, even from a young age, to become a teacher. I didn't know what kind of teacher I'd be. It started in gymnastics and then martial arts, but it turned out to be a broader perspective. So I moved out of the gymnasium into everyday life. That's a long introduction, but that provides a context. Well, that was an outstanding introduction. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways we can go here. There's a couple of things that really stuck out for me because yes, if, if you're a coach, it's obvious that you're a teacher, you're a, you're a developer, you're a mentor, but you described talent for living. And I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, you said you did some research in that area. You have found these areas and then you found four mentors. So let's talk a little bit about talent for living first. And then I want to dive into the mentors because now we're starting to see, you know, the, the connection between real life and, you know, the, the 20 years. That, that you've learned all of these things. And I want to I dive into that. You know, it took me a while to abstract the qualities that make up 
a talented athlete or musician or anyone who, as I said, performs or does movement physical arts. But talent for living is, is a broader question. And you know that old saying, I don't know if it was Will Rogers, whoever said it, we, we're all ignorant, only on different subjects. And we all have different strengths, different weaknesses. We know this from our life experience. So one person may have one kind of approach to living and are talented in one way and someone else may be talented in another. I don't have just a list of what makes up a talent for living. I do have, I, well, actually I, I do. You know, I take that back. One of my major, one of my larger books, kind of a magnum opus I wrote in 1998, uh, it's called Everyday Enlightenment. And it talks about 12 courses in the school of life. Now, I need to provide this context. I view planet Earth as a kind of school for souls where we all evolve and daily life is our classroom. And many people would say, well, isn't daily life, aren't we here to succeed in relationships and business and finances? Um, and health and, and physical vitality and, and that sort of thing. And, and sure, that's the stuff of everyday life, which I view as a kind of spiritual weight training. And we all know we encounter challenges in everyday life in those various areas. And those are the weights we lift. If you don't lift, lift any weights, you don't get any stronger. So our daily life does teach us about those things. But actually, we're not here just to master relationships and health and finances and so on. We're here to learn some fundamental areas. And what I do in that other book, that uh, book I wrote in 1998, it came from a contemplation about what, what do we mean when we talk about personal growth, personal development? Because there's so many specialists out there. There are people who are relationship coaches or experts, people who are health experts, people who are financial advisors. These are aspects of everyday life. And it reminded me of a cartoon I saw in the New Yorker magazine years ago. It showed a man in a hospital bed wrapped up in plaster and tape after some terrible accident. His entire body was covered and wrapped in, in plaster, except for his feet, which were fine. And there was a doctor standing there with his arms crossed in this cartoon saying, you know, as a podiatrist, I'd say you're a lucky man. And in other words, we often look at things from that one narrow viewpoint. A relationships coach, it's all about relationships. If you have those, you're a happy person. Uh, someone else is, but if you don't have a financial foundation, how can you get anywhere in life? And so on. So I asked myself, what constitutes the entire realm, scope of what we call personal growth or personal development? And I started writing a list right away. Very quickly, it came to me. These 12 areas of life that I'll only just list here to give a scope of what I mean by talent for living. The first fundamental area is discovering our worth, our innate value as human beings. Because often we deduct from our own life, our own sense of worth, which leads to self-sabotage and other problems. Because, you know, they say you don't get what you deserve in life, you get what you're willing to negotiate. But we only negotiate to the degree we feel deserving of it. And I wish to say everyone feels they deserve life's riches. But if you look at lives out there, their behaviors and the results they get don't reflect that. So discovering our worth is a fundamental area of what we call these life skills, this talent for living. And I'll just go briefly. The second is reclaiming our will, 
In other words, the whole issue of self-discipline, which I go into in some depth. And, and then the third is energizing our body. Those are the three foundational elements. Self-worth, not, and it's different from self-esteem, by the way. We can go into that if you want later. But self-worth is this innate subconscious sense of our own deservedness in life. And then our will or just self-discipline, and then energizing our body. With those, they provide a foundation for all that follows, which includes managing our money, because finances are a realistic part of life, then taming our mind, and I have some rather unusual ideas about what that means, and then trusting our intuition, accepting our emotions, facing our fears, illuminating our shadow, which is about full, realistic self-knowledge, and then comes embracing our sexuality, whether we're active or not, embracing ourselves in a sense of pleasure in life. And finally, the last two of these areas, since you asked about talent for living, would be awakening our heart. And what do you think the last one is that brings us full circle and brings us back to your unique offering and program, which is serving our world. Without that, it's all self-absorbed. Uh, it's all self-improvement. But when it, then all those other things help us to come back and effectively serve our world, which reminds me of a story we can go into or not as you, as you please. But those I would define as a talent for living, those aspects of life. That's awesome. And, and truly could be a second episode in and of itself. So yes. we'll, but we will put a link to that book, your 1998 book in the show notes if people want to dive deeper. So we we have done, granted at a high level, uh, a, a shot, a, sna- a decent snapshot of what talent for living looks like. You mentioned four mentors. So talk to us about why that's important and what these mentors taught you on your journey. Well, I'm delighted to do that, of course, since it's the core of my, my new book. But let me just touch upon the story that brings it all home about these 12 areas of life and so on. Sure. And, you know, my old mentor, I describe in Way of the Peaceful Warrior, my literary mentor, I call Socrates, this old gas station attendant played by Nick Nolte in the movie version. I tell the story about, well, we're walking down the street and I see a poster on the wall. This is Berkeley in the 60s, a poster about starving children and another about oppressed peoples. And then there was the war in Vietnam and the anti-war protests uh, going on. And I, I said, Socrates, you know, I sometimes feel guilty doing all this work on myself, this self-oriented work, when there's so many people in need out there and causes that are valuable. Shouldn't I be more active you know, doing things like that rather than just self-analysis and self-massage and self-this and self-development and so on? And he, he didn't even respond. And I said, Socrates, did you hear what I just said? And he turned to me. All of a sudden and said, Dan, I'll give you five bucks if you can slap me on the cheek. And I went, what? Did you hear what I was just saying? What are you? And he said, come on, go for it. Well, I figured it was some kind of test. So I bobbed and weaved and finally took a swing at him. And I found myself in the next few moments on the ground in a rather painful wrist lock. And as he helped me to my feet, he said, you notice a little leverage can be very effective. I said, yes, I noticed shaking out my wrist. And he said, well, you want to help people. That's great. Do what your heart tells you. But don't neglect the work on yourself so that you have the clarity to exert the right leverage 
at the right place, at the right time, then you can truly be effective in the world. And my life has been doing that ever since. And it helped resolve the, this bicameral issue about do you help the world or do you work on yourself? Both. But work on yourself to the degree where you can be more helpful and do um, better work to exerting the right leverage at the right place at the right time. So I thought I'd share that since it's so appropriate to your show. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Beautifully illustrated. Thank you for, for sharing that. So now we've set the stage. Let's talk, which is really the a core of your book, as you said, let's talk for mentors. Right. And yes, the core of the, the of peaceful heart warrior spirit, I go into my foundational elements, my childhood, and what prepared me for the work I was about to do. But I spent um, over 20 years working with one mentor, then another, then another. And how I discovered them, it's a natural question. I think my commitment to share with others what I've learned opened me up somehow to this this fortunate and, and challenging way of life that was to help me prepare for the work I was about to do. But the first mentor, by the way, these four mentors were radically different from one another, but together they constitute an approach to the entire, what we call spiritual quest. So the first mentor I call the professor. The second is the guru. The third I call the warrior priest, and the fourth, the sage. Now, these were real people. I mean, I have readers of the book will be able to access a web link that shows their pictures, the books some of them wrote, uh, their backgrounds, and I go into that in the book as well. But what's important is what they represented, each of them. So I use these archetypal names, but I, of course, identify them in the book. The professor created a school unlike any other on the planet. And I'm somewhat familiar with the history of spirituality, the various traditions around the world. And he ended up through his own rather fascinating story, creating a school that reflected a global heritage of spiritual traditions. So he wasn't just a Zen teacher, a Buddhist, um, a Christian, or a Jew, relying on the Kabbalah and uh, Hasidic wisdom. He had embraced and studied the entire global heritage, the Sangomas of Africa, the indigenous peoples, the Coranderos of Latin America and Central America. And after this study, he created a school um, combining 50 different kinds of meditation to explore the range of meditation, what it was for, for different purposes. Deep breath work, which, which is a, the interface of the emotions and the mind, 
body. Various contemplations, principles, models, levels of consciousness, doors of the psyche to releasing tension. I go into all this in, in a very clear way in, in, in the book, of course. But I wanted to summarize, this is what he did. He was the professor, the headmaster of a rather unusual spiritual school. And so that's all I'll say for the moment about the professor, because I want to contrast him with the guru. Now, in, in Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, of course, I go into what attracted me to each of my mentors. And I, I hope to seduce, in a way, the reader so that they go, wow, I wish I'd done this. It must have been incredible for Dan to experience all this, this training. But at the same time, I'm also going to tell why I ended up moving on and leaving this approach to the, uh, the spiritual quest to enlightenment. Um, and by the way, the professor had promised after an intensive 40-day training, about 10 hours a day, with group process accelerating our evolution and deep insight work and group kind of experiences, he promised enlightenment. That was the, the, the whole goal of the school, pristine illumination, what is promised in many of the spiritual traditions. But I grew disillusioned for reasons I go into in the book eventually, even though it was a very you know, classical, brilliant school. And then I discovered an American-born guru a spiritual teacher, spiritual master, if you will, who went to Stanford University, Columbia undergrad, then got a master's in English and became a prolific writer, brilliant writer, who impressed teachers, impressed people like Alan Watts, who said, I've been waiting for such a one my entire life, who impressed Ken Wilber, maybe you've heard of him, who was a scholar on various spiritual and psycho-spiritual traditions. They both had huge, you know, enthusiastic endorsements of this particular teacher, the guru. But his approach was quite different from the technology of the professor, the spiritual practices and exercises to produce certain results. And his relationship was the classic enlightened master who would just sit with his devotees and radiate spirit or God, the divine. And he was transparent. To the, to the divine uh, reality. That was, so his thing was a relationship where we surrender to the divine through this wise teacher. And I spent nearly eight years with the guru, my wife, Joy, and I. She's been with me throughout this, this journey. And in fact, Joy weighs in in my memoir. She has commentaries that she offers in the book. So the guru had a very different approach, radically different. He, he said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment. He was a radical teacher in the crazy wisdom tradition. And so I was on and off. I was a, a student and devotee in a way of this master going up to the sanctuary every day or every weekend, every weekend for many, many years, sitting with him, doing a guru seva, which is service to the guru, and enjoying very different kinds of teaching from transcendent wisdom, from a man who claimed to be at the highest point of enlightenment. But I learned other lessons of a different kind from him in a process of disillusion over time, 
But that didn't take away from the brilliance of his writings and his, his teaching and his and the, his presence. And then, to make it a little more brief, I was done with teachers. I had the two highest teachers I you could find from as far as I was concerned. Though there are hundreds and hundreds of teachers, ancient and modern, that other people have experienced, of course. But then I, through weird circumstances, I discovered the warrior, the man I call the warrior priest who was a, a brilliant martial arts instructor, but also a master of metaphysical ideas, who had some gifts, some intuitive gifts, let's say. Some call it clairvoyance, but demonstrated. And he ended up launching, in a sense, a different kind of teaching career for me. I had not taught really much other than gymnastics to this point in time, but he gave me some tools to begin uh, to inspire me to write again. You know, I hadn't written a book after Way of the Peaceful Warrior for 10 years. But after meeting this particular teacher, the warrior priest, I began to write again. And one book after another, year by year, about the three selves from the Huna, Kahuna teachings of Hawaii, articulated in a certain way. I started doing life purpose work. And a book that sold over a million copies called The Life You Were Born to Live. Uh, an uncannily accurate guide anyone can find to clarify their life purpose and core issues in their life. So I learned a great deal. I, I learned a knife fighting training, spiritual growth through knife fighting. I taught for 14 years, attracting people from all over the world. So he gave me some wonderful tools that I expressed in my own way and ended up writing, uh, you know, I had 20 pages of notes from a series of lectures he gave. I ended up writing a, over a 400-page uh, uh, book, again, called The Life You Were Born to Live. So that in itself could be another episode together. And much of my work has dealt with life purpose, to clarify that, because you know to live a purposeful life of clarity is not so easy. But it was a tool for self-knowledge. And finally, finally, after this, I was done again with teachers. What else could I do? I was teaching myself. And then, though, again, through some odd circumstances, synchronicity, if you will, I came upon the sage who brought me back to earth and everyday reality in a different way. So, you know, there's a saying, an old Zen saying that I, I think I related in my first book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, that at the beginning of the quest, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. But then after you've experienced a great deal of metaphysical wisdom and understand the metaphors of life, rivers are no longer just rivers and mountains are no longer just mountains. But finally, at the end of the quest, when you return to the world, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. So he brought me back to that reality that allowed me to express myself in a way I hope that is more direct, simple, jargon-free, purpose, moment-to-moment -moment focused. So that's a long speech, I suppose, but that gives you the information about that I can summarize here about these four mentors who and who adventures with I of course express in the new memoir. And, and of course it's always challenging Dan to compress 20 years of your life and 200 pages into a format like this. But, you know, I, I don't want to speak for everybody who's listening to this, but I know 
I'm not going to seek out a warrior priest to learn knife fighting from anybody. And I don't imagine how many people listening to this are going to grab their knives and start doing that. So, you know, we've talked a lot of, there's been a lot of esoteric knowledge and, and lessons that you've learned over the years. I'm going to kind of, you know, gun or I guess knife to your head, <laughs> put it together in, in, in a way that if somebody's listening to this right now, what are the tangible lessons that somebody should be taking from your book that they'll gain and some of the practical applications into the daily life, their daily lives that they're going to get from reading this book? Well, that's just the point, uh, as you well expressed, Dr. Schuss, Dr. Richard. Some people launder money. I launder spiritual teachings. So very few readers or people are going to go through the experiences over two decades that I did. And so my work is not about trying to synthesize or summarize esoteric teachings. I've brought it back to daily life, to the here and now, in practical, actionable terms. And so what this book is about, I mean, people, you know, memoirs, unless you're a celebrity, why wouldn't people necessarily want to read a book about my life? We all have a unique story to share and to live. And I remind people that their story is their treasure. There's not a single story on the planet like your story, like our story. Each of us has a story that's never been exactly duplicated. And each of our stories has moments of heroism, quiet heroism, of courage, of overcoming adversity. So why my story? Why would I want to write that down except for a few friends and relatives? Because as I attempted to do in a semi-fictional book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, I'm now doing through this true story behind the story, which is to convey some essential wisdom about the search. And we, you know, we're all searching for something, whether it's enlightenment or a better job or relationship or more money and so on. Because this quest for happiness is universal. I would say we're all on a spiritual quest, whether we would use that term or not. We're all seeking something. And at the end of every search is the promise of happiness. You know, one of the best things about going to college, and I point this out in the book as well, that the best thing about going to college is you find out it doesn't make you happy. Although there are people who never went to college who say, you know, if I'd only gone to college, I'd be happy. If only I had an improved relationship, I'd be happy. If I'd found my soulmate, if only I'd had children, I'd be happy. If only I hadn't had children, I'd be happy. If only I made more money, I'd be happy. If only I traveled more and experienced more. If only I, when I'm retired, I'll be happy. If only I got more respect. We, until we find out there's no such thing as future happiness. The future never comes. It's always in the future. We're either happy now or we're not. And one of the things I learned, one of the many things from my mentors is happiness is not just some giddy feeling we feel. We know what that's like, but it doesn't last. Happiness is a practice, is a discipline. And what is that discipline? How do you practice happiness? How do you radiate it in everyday life? Well, 
We all know what it's like to be very happy. We've all had moments of happiness. Aren't we more expansive, more present, more kind when we're feeling happy than when we're unhappy? So it's a discipline of bringing that to life, of focusing on behavior rather than on trying to fix our mind and emotions to have only positive thoughts or just the right emotions of confidence and peace and love so we can go out and live well. So finally, ending with the sage, I, I focus now on behavior, purposeful behavior in the moment, whether no matter what I happen to be feeling. Now, emotions are very important, but an emotion-centered life is chaotic because emotions change all the time. So this behavior of happiness, happiness as a practice, as what we do, that is one of the many life lessons that I learned. But also, it's a cautionary tale about the quest for spirit. I mean, the search only reinforces the sense of dilemma that sent us seeking in the first place. So rather than be an inveterate, chronic seeker of things we feel we don't have, there's a point we come to rest in everyday life and embrace and accept our lives as they are, even as we improve. So this is some of the insight and wisdom that I learned through my teachers that I express in my own way. So I'm not expressing, I'm not teaching the professor's work or trying to be the guru or just teaching the warrior priest's work. By the way, by the way, since you uh, um, mentioned that knife training, I have very little interest in knife fighting. The odds of my having to do that are extremely small. Many of us have philosophical uh, objections as well. That training was the most profound insight training and, if you will, spiritual training that allowed me to make some fundamental shifts in my life because the knife gets our attention. By the way, we worked with rubber bicycle handles, <laughs> not steel knives. Nobody got hurt in the training, but it brought up stuff on a final test. I don't teach it anymore. Um, after 14 years, it was so intense. I just, some other people may teach things like that now. The point was, he was an adventurer, the warrior priest. And the sage finally was a perfect end point. If I'd had these teachers in different order, I don't know if that would have happened. But that's through my quest. I want to bring readers with me so they gain perspective about the spiritual service, the quest for happiness, and all that. Beautiful. And that is the larger lesson and the theme of, that justifies my writing the book and perhaps other people reading. Beautiful. And a perfect segue to the last thing I want to ask you is we are at time and this has been really enlightening. I ask everybody who comes on my show, Dan, as you know, their biggest helping and that one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today. Uh, what I'd like to leave your listeners with. Uh, and again, what I also convey in the book, because I went through a, a phase of no longer trusting myself. I had to put all my faith in the guru or in the professor's wisdom and so on. And I finally came to rest with this note. 
I hope readers will take away, and I hope your listeners will take away a sense of the value of trusting themselves, trusting their own lives unfolding as they are, not as they could be or should be, but embracing their life as it is. What I mean by this is stop comparing ourselves. Let's stop comparing ourselves to other people. Because as soon as we compare ourselves to someone else, whether it's overall as a human being or, or in a particular area of life, our skill level in a particular given instance, when we do that, we're either going to feel superior or inferior, rarely equal exactly. And it's a profound form of disrespect for our own self, our own process. Even as a young gymnastics coach, when I used to teach people somersaults, I found that some people learn to somersault quicker, faster than other people. But I also realized that often those who took longer to learn it learned it better than those who learned it quickly. So we need to trust our process, our way of learning, and come to know who we are and accept who we are. So this sense of self-acceptance and self-trust, I think is key. Also self-respect. Awesome. For the unique aspect of our lives. And that is my big, big helping that I'd like to offer your listeners. Thank you so much for that. Dan, the book is Peaceful Heart, Where Your Spirit, which is available everywhere tomorrow. Give us a link where people can learn more about you online and maybe get their hands on that book. Sure. Yeah. Anyone can go to peacefulwarrior.com. We're all peaceful warriors in training in the school of daily life. So peacefulwarrior.com and they can find the book there or online platforms. Fantastic. Dan, this has been illuminating to be sure. You've got years worth of wisdom packed into this book. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for coming on The Daily Helping and, and sharing a bit of your journey with us today. Dr. Richard, I am I'm so pleased to have the chance to converse with you today. Absolutely. And, and each and every one of you who chose to take time out of your busy days to listen to this, thank you as well. If you like what you heard today, well, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because that is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 